0: Well, the reality is that there's nothing dangerous about Black history and it's a smokescreen to just say we need to strip all things away that are not um, centered on a European narrative and a white Western story. Um, There's nothing dangerous, inherently dangerous of people learning about the world around them. In this moment, we are struggling to still bring about equity in our schools in Vermont. The work that the Act One Working Group did is coming to a close. And there's very little um, hope.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When white nationalists began a campaign of racist and misogynist attacks against former state representative Kaya Morris, they hoped to silence her. They failed. Morris has continued to fight back and speak out since resigning her seat as a state representative from Bennington. She stepped down in 2018 out of concern for the safety of her family, but she has not stepped back. Her story is told in a new documentary, Backlash, Misogyny in the Digital Age, which premieres in the U.S. next week during Black History Month. Morris is among four women who fight cyber-violence campaigns who are profiled in the film. The women include Laura Baldrini, who is called the most harassed politician in Italy, also a French YouTube personality, and an elementary school teacher from Montreal. All four women pursue their tormentors and demand accountability from those who are responsible, ranging from the tech giants to the state law enforcement, and the perpetrators. When Morris was first elected in 2014, she was just the second African-American woman to serve in the Vermont legislature. In January 2019, Vermont Attorney General T.J. Donovan announced that he would not bring criminal charges against the white nationalist who was harassing Morris and her family, insisting that racially offensive speech was protected. Civil rights groups denounced the decision. Morris has continued to pursue justice. In 2021, an investigator with the Vermont Human Rights Commission found grounds that the Bennington Police Department violated the human rights of Morris and her family and endangered their safety by withholding critical information about the white supremacists who had been targeting her. As part of the settlement, the Bennington Select Board paid $137,000 to Morris and formally apologized to her. Last year, Kaya Morris was appointed Executive Director of Rights and Democracy, a grassroots progressive advocacy group that operates in Vermont and New Hampshire. She continues to be a vocal champion of numerous social justice issues. Kaya Morris, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank
0: you so much, David. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Before we get into this remarkable film that you are featured in, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself for people who don't know you and kind of give the big picture of where you grew up, what brought you to Vermont, and how you got involved in politics.
0: Thank you, David. So um, I am originally born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I moved out here um, sometime in the late 2000s, early 2008, 2009, came to visit Vermont and fell in love with Vermont and got into work in public health in Bennington, Vermont and stayed there for a number of years. And during that time, doing that community and public health work, really got to know and understand the needs of the community down there and seeing the importance of having a um, leaders that were willing to come and work with courage. Those who were willing to not just accept things as they are and um, have a real passion and a, a love for communities in a way that is not self-serving, but in one that's trying to lift up everyone that was in this community that I just adored. Um, after working professionally for some time, an opportunity came up for me to consider running for office, and I ran for the state legislature, becoming the second African-American woman in the history of the state of Vermont to serve in the General Assembly. I have to
1: ask you, who was the first and when?
0: (laughs) Yes, that would have been Representative Levenia Bright, and she was in the 90s. So she came up from the South Burlington area and um, was a trailblazer that we all stand on the shoulders of now today. So um, I wish that she was uh, around to still be able to share these conversations and see how much of an influence she's had on everything that's come to pass since then. So...
1: So 2014, you are elected for the first time. You were re-elected in 2016. When did the trouble begin for you?
0: The trouble began in 2016, as we saw it happening all over the country, with the election of President Donald Trump. The days and months leading up to that, as well as the official kind of start with the inauguration, really set off a firestorm across the country that made its way here to the Green Mountain State where there were people who were openly fascist in their beliefs, people who were deeply racist, who were anti-Semitic, folks who aligned themselves with groups as inflammatory as the Nazis, um, that really self-identified themselves in these um, really insidious ways that are destructive to the communities and um, create a sense of terror for those who are having to engage with these individuals, um, whether in their workplace or at home. Um, these individuals targeted um, on a national scale. And with my re-election, they essentially deputized one of their followers to kind of say, hey, why is this Black woman elected into office in Vermont? This happened on your watch. What are you going to do about it? And that brought about a a litany of hatred um, that grew into a a really deep and complex story that sounds like something you would hear at a Hollywood, just with the layers of having friends turn into folks that you couldn't trust, family members that became disconnected because the the voices of um, those that were really invested in the rhetoric coming out of the white house and in the campaigns that were coming out of those people that were followers of this president had created a situation that was wholly unsafe for myself and my family and created a danger for the community at large and for the state as we're now still reckoning with so much that has happened since those years. So I, um, first started experiencing that in 2016, but it was one of those things that you just didn't want to imagine was gonna directly impact you. You do, No one wants to feel like they might be a target. No one wants to concern themselves with worrying who they could trust, who they could lean on for support. You believe in the institutions that are there that are meant to protect, including law enforcement and our legal system are supposed to be there when these types of things happen to set a societal message and a course correction because that's not who we imagine ourselves to be that's not how we imagine our communities or our state or our nation to be and there was just an abject failure all the way around for many years to come that only increased in the severity of the types of experiences that we were having to the um, impacts of those who were even watching who also share visible identities, marginalised identities, targeted identities throughout the state. It's been a heartbreak, but it's one that um, I know has been felt globally, but it's hurt particularly, I think, here in Vermont.
1: I wonder if you could just, uh, again, for people who don't know the story, the the forms of attacks and harassment that it took uh, against you, what were you dealing with?
0: We were dealing with everything from online harassment um, with threats being made to um, social media posts that were not only deeply hateful, but were frightening to experience. We had things happening in the physical space where there were coordinated harassment attacks on, on our home. Um, people basically trying to physically terrorize us, Nazi um, swastikas and things painted on the trees around our home, vandalism of our home, break-ins into our home. And um, what really made all of it come to a head was the fact that as these things were happening, we were constantly being um, told that they were not of importance, that the threats weren't real, There were aspersions cast on us that we were somehow making it up as attention-seeking behavior rather than a real warning that there was violence in our midst, that there were individuals who do not only have violent pasts and histories, but are currently activating people, almost motivating them, um, as we've seen happen in many different terrorist kind of cell sorts of groups. Um, It became a a space where I went from being a respected member of the community to being a social pariah who was in the way of the reputation of the community, as well as a threat to the vitality of the community. And so the local leadership was not only not invested in trying to deal with it, but were also participating in these activities by... um, sharing false information and trying to press folks like the attorney general to press charges against me and my family for trying to seek recourse and support and help. And so it went from the space of just being online to in a real world where that sense of safety no longer exists Mm -hmm. for me. I don't feel safe in that community. I don't try to travel there very often. It's not somewhere that I feel welcome or comfortable in, as it was so widespread and unchecked for so long. And the folks who have done some of the worst damage have had no repercussions whatsoever. There've been no community sanctions. The outcries have been altogether muted Mm. while people are still suffering from those effects.
1: I wanna move now to the film, Backlash, Misogyny in the Digital Age which places your story in a larger context in a global context you are featured alongside a leader in the Italian parliament a school teacher in montreal a social media influencer in france all women trying to live their lives but in in varying degrees in public positions talk about this larger context that your story you now see your story located in? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we know that um, online harassment has become a really effective tool for trying to silence and um, terrorize communities. It has become a very specific way of trying to silence women's voices in that the types of threats and the things that um, we are experiencing when we become those targets is unchecked it can move at an exponential rate. It's often very well organized and considered and thought out. So you might expect some of that because, yeah, you're a political figure. And so people, they want to say it's about political ideology and differences in political ideology. But then when you look at the words, you look at the characteristics of these types of online threats, you look at the pervasiveness and the persistence of them, um, and that it is speaking often to your womanhood, to, in my case, to my Black womanhood, um, these are, their threats of rape, their are threats of torture, they're threats um, that are deeply rooted in misogyny. And you see how it has changed everyone's lives forever. And once you have experienced that, you do move into the world a little bit more cautiously. And it, it really does shatter kind of your sense of, your sense of freedom in being able to just be a human and just be a person that's raising their child. That's teaching a class that's doing what they were elected to do. That's communicating with people across the globe. Those are now points of terror. Those are points of, um, those are points where we're afraid, where we find ourselves more and more afraid.
1: You are the lone person of color in the film who is featured of the women who, um, whose stories are told, talk about how, in your story, this nexus of racism and misogyny, how they intersect and amplify one another.
0: So racialized terrorism is something that's happened since the founding of this country, and it has effectively worked in many, many ways to literally silence people through death or to effectively silence them through policy or through casually silencing them through the use of these kinds of threatening behaviors to say, because of your racialized identity, and especially if you have a visible racial identity, now we already know that you don't belong. We don't want you here. (laughs) We already know that there are some that um, are of the deep belief system that Blacks, people of color are inferior. Folks of the global majority are the ones that um, should remain disempowered because they are we are seen as less than when we know that we are more than. And so the nexus for me when it came through to gender it was like a double offense to the people who live in a hateful world and are about exercising their hatred. It is so easy to to quiet and silence the voices of Black women when you don't want to hear them anyway in the most peaceful of circumstances. It's only when we are bleeding. It is only when we are at our deepest points of pain that someone might notice and it still may not ever bring you justice. It may never bring about healing. It may never bring about a reparation for the harm that's done. So... It was, you know, we, we've seen this happen. We've seen it happen with Gamergate. We've seen this happen with even Meghan Markle. We see this happen in so many places where it's because you are there and you're in your Black womanhood that you are an ex- existential threat to the ways that white supremacy and patriarchal notions want to imagine the world. And because the fact that we're here and we're still surviving, that is a problem for some people. And in my case, it was a problem for many. It was an issue for many.
1: You mentioned at one point in the film that online harassment and hate is a form of mobilizing. It's not just talk. Explain what you mean by that.
0: That is something that I think people really get confused by, right? So they will see an incident like, okay, someone put up a threat of a um, threatening to kill someone, right? And maybe they're like, that's not that serious. It was just one incident, it was just one moment. So that is part of the problem, and that was something that I had to really come to reckon with myself, because you'll see maybe one or two isolated online sort of postings, but the recognition of the fact that that becomes almost a viral call to action. There's always the question of if that person puts up that video, if that person shares their views and identifies you as a target, who else is watching, who else is listening? It becomes a way for people to coalesce around an action, which is often one that leads to violence or further terrorism. And it would not happen in isolation. It happens because of the the just the volatility of an online space. It can be reshared and reposted in a thousand different places. It can be repackaged. It can be deep faked to even create um, ways of being able to mobilize. Those who will do something within the physical world, take it beyond just doxing, taking it beyond just harassment or hacking, it goes beyond that and it absolutely can make its way into the physical world. But in each of those situations, you're connecting up with another person who agrees with that ideology or becomes convinced about that ideology and now has a very easy place for them to land their aggressions and their... Um, their agenda.
1: What should be done by social media companies, by law enforcement to address this? And I should say that in a backlash, one of the really remarkable interviews that takes place is with the sister of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the founder of Facebook, and she is harshly critical of the role that uh, her brother's company, among others, play in the world of online hate.
0: It is a challenge to um, direct the social media companies when it's built on such a system of incredible wealth and capitalism that it's difficult to parse out where is a profit-making model and where is a protection of human rights. And I know that there have been groups that have been actively meeting with social media companies, asking them to change their ways, to think about how they're going to monitor the speech. There is a... uh, We've made a sac- We've made the our First Amendment rights sac. Sacrosanct. Sac, you know, sort of like precious in a way that never calls for question. It never calls about the link between what is being said and what that effect is. Whereas we do draw those lines and distinctions in just about every other instance and in how we interact. And we also are making clear choices as a society about whose First Amendment rights are the most important over others. Right. Social media companies are. Um, very rarely able to own what they need to. They're very hesitant to recognize their culpability and letting it go unchecked. The reality is that each of these companies have incredible brilliance. They have people who are geniuses and thinking about ways to deal with coding, to identify opportunities for us to question and to review. Their systems are failing the systems of reporting, the systems of fact-checking are failing. And that is why it still runs unabated. Law enforcement's only gonna do what the laws tell them to do. And in often cases, they're the first point of entry for people trying to seek justice around that. And if they do not themselves understand the clear and pervasive nature of these types of things, they're not gonna do anything about
1: it. And we should point out in your case, Attorney General T. J. Donovan, in two thousand and nineteen, came to Bennington in what became a bizarre spectacle uh, with you and your husband standing at his side and announced that there was nothing criminal that he would or would prosecute, that this was protected speech. It was offensive, but it was protected speech. And then, of course, the, you know, the white nationalist troll who's been stalking you, entered that uh, meeting, that announcement, and disrupted the whole thing. But what was so disturbing about that was the scene of the state's top law enforcement officer coming to your community to announce there was nothing that could be done.
0: It was devastating. It was devastating for everyone. It was devastating, especially for the people of color who were there and were now realizing their own extreme vulnerability, that they were going to have no protections. It was stunning for folks from the Jewish community that we had held this at their synagogue and they were to learn, you're not going to get any protections either. It was a gut punch to everyone in that space. But it was unsurprising because law enforcement was completely unwilling to do anything about my case and was often working in collusion with some of these same people. So of course, they're not going to give information to the attorney general that would actually be of value for him to make a, a proper assessment. But then there was also a complete and total unwillingness for the attorney general's office to do that investigation themselves. So that's where we come to find that there wasn't going to be any kind of measure of real justice for anyone and what that justice would look like, but that we were completely inept as a state to even be ready to deal with it. And we felt the repercussions of that ever since.
1: What should have happened there? And also, did you realize when Attorney General Dunneman came to Bennington that he was going to announce in this very public forum that he wasn't going to do anything?
0: I did. I actually knew that in advance. We did talk with the Attorney General prior to that so that I would be prepared for what the conclusions of this their um, their summary. I wouldn't even say it was an investigation because, again, they based it off of the very poor, weak, horrible, faulty <laughs> um, evidence that they were given by the Bunnington Police Department um, that was meant to silence the entire process, that was meant to um, invalidate the entire process. That really was a mockery of what's supposed to happen within a system of justice. Um, So I wasn't surprised that that was gonna be the answer. And that actually was never a perspective I got to bring because it was at that point that Max Mish walked in the door, but Max Mish was not the only one that was there there were many of the other actors that were a part of that were also in that space and were there for the purpose of harassment. We're there for the purposes of being able to be a part of this well orchestrated and coordinated betrayal on the communities they were supposed to serve. Yeah,
1: This online hate is supposed to silence you. That's its intent. It's supposed to drive you out, shut you up. But You have done the opposite. Yes, you resigned from the legislature, but you have persisted. Um, You took your case uh, against the select board and won a financial settlement from the Bennington select board because of what the police failed to do. And in 2021, the Vermont Human Rights Commission found that the Bennington Police Department endangered your safety by withholding critical information about the white supremacist who'd been targeting you on social media. And where did you get that strength? Why did you persist? You didn't shut up.
0: I didn't. I wanted to, because things must change. They must change. They must change. I went from being in a community that I was deeply in love with to one that I was terrified of, one that I could no longer see myself or my family being a part of anymore. I saw what this was doing to everyone else. And um, it was important that we fought. It was important that we pursued it. Did it bring justice? Not really. Nothing has changed in Bennington at all. Even though the report was very excellently detailed and the amount of malfeasance that happened on behalf of the select board, on the chairs, on the... (laughs) The town manager, the chief of police, multiple officers, nothing was done to this day. Not a single sanction, not a single call for resignation. Nothing as a community happened. And the settlement was paltry and the mediation was humiliating. And I'm so disappointed and embarrassed that my family, my mother, my siblings had to witness how gross this whole experience was. It did nothing to support Bennington, but it at least raised the profile in a way that other people knew that they should try to fight back. And the system is so stacked against anyone who deserves to have justice and who deserves to have peace. And I had to say goodbye to another Black family in this state who moved away because of the levels of harassment that have happened here, that have gone unchecked, unabated, and often supported by people in power. We have to continue to fight. I must not leave that legacy to my son to know that we said it was okay because it's not okay and things are not healed.
1: You're featured in this new documentary film, Backlash. What do you feel this backlash is against?
0: It is against women. It is a gendered thing. It is a thing that has happened as women are stepping into our own power, as we are continuing to move with a society that's supposed to move with us, that there are many who cannot handle that. They cannot handle that level of progress. There are many who actively want us to retreat back into subservient roles there are people who do not believe that we have human rights in the ways that we should and so this backlash is coming um so reactionary and especially just seeing the rise of fascism across the globe that's popping up in political scenes it's really showing us the depth that folks have sort of laid in wait as far as we know except It's also very well coordinated for this moment when they would have to feel that they need to come back with a violent response to tell us that the progress that we've made, it has no meaning for them and it's not something that they recognize.
1: Last year, we saw the overturning of Roe v. Wade by a conservative Supreme Court and now women in more than half the states of this country are no longer able to make basic decisions about their own bodies. How do you locate that in the backlash?
0: It's definitely tied into the backlash in a number of ways. I think one of the most direct ways is our representation, is women's representation in the places of decision-making power. That is, That cannot be um, understated. As I fully recognize in the roles that i play in the community working with individuals who may see themselves as wanting to run for office wanting to hold political seats wanting to be on boards and commissions that make the lower level decisions that lead up to the big decisions that are then decided by the supreme court that it is difficult to do so and um, they are constantly dealing with harassment themselves threats against their lives threats against their families this is a way of ensuring that the people who have those decision-making powers, that having the judges in place that don't believe in reproductive freedoms, having, um, again, even just having a willingness of the legal system to interrogate this in the right way, to ensure that we are not um, removing deep human rights that have been fought for and that people have died for, is not something that um, we tie away from the experiences that we're having here. It is a way of trying to make women, again, be less than.
1: We are having this conversation in the same week that a horrific murder by police occurred of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. You have your own experience of feeling betrayed by local law enforcement. What do you take from that story in Memphis, in you know another incident, another black man uh, whose life is cut short by police. What what is your reaction to what you saw?
0: We're all angry and devastated at what happened to Tyree Nichols, as well as what happened um, to the environmental justice worker Manuel out in Georgia for Cop City, we're recognizing the ways that law enforcement are becoming militarized. We already know that the propensity for deep violence, domestic violence um, that takes place within the law enforcement community, all of the trainings, all of the uh, bias-free work, all of that really doesn't mean anything when the culture is based on one of deep violence, distrust of the public, and um, one that is allowed to work with impunity, the inability for us to get any basic measures around qualified immunity removals so that police are not held to a higher standard where they are never held accountable means that um, there is a lack of safety within what's couched as public safety. I'm, I'm drawn to the stories remembering still, we're not that far away from the death of folks like Breonna Taylor. There are so many women that have died at the hands of police black women who have died at the hands of police because our lives have been seen as less than and um, easily disposable they are not meant to protect us this goes back to a long legacy and a history of law enforcement being used as a way to control black bodies
1: one twist in this story is that it was black police officers who murdered Tyree Nichols.
0: It's a culture of violence. It is a culture of violence, plain and and simple. It is the militarization of our police. It is one where everybody says, it's not me, it's not us, but then they do it all the same. That is just, there's nothing surprising about who's wearing the badge, nor are we surprised by what's happening with the actions of those wearing the badges, because that's just part of a long history for those five black men we can come up with thousands of names of white men who have been doing this and getting away with it for
1: centuries the black lives matter movement changed our society in in fundamental ways what would you say about the, the state of the movement for black lives now
0: the movement is still there people are still fighting people are still out there pressing for changes needed changes what happened is that the wealthy and the white folks in the United States lost their attention. They just, they had an attention gap and it disappeared. It was no longer shiny and new. It didn't help build up their stocks. It didn't help bring in more profit into their pockets. And so the same money that was willing to reinvest in our communities dried up almost instantaneously. The same um, promises to support um, the leadership and the um, the wisdom of communities most impacted, of that of black folks, of that of black women, it dried up, it went away. There was an about face. And when we do talk about a backlash, the backlash is also found in that police state where it was instead of an investment in the very things that nurture and support our communities was seen as unimportant. And instead we need to reinvest in not only having more law enforcement, but having them be even more ready for war. And it's war against the people of the United States. It's a war against black and brown bodies. It's a war against women. That is what happened since the movement for black lives. We've been in this fight before. We're still going to be in it no matter what name it is, whether or not our white counterparts are going to be there for us. That's the million dollar question that we have not seen the answer to yet.
1: If we really believe that black lives matter, what should be happening? What changes do you think should be at the top of the list? Um, And start with right here in Vermont.
0: We need to look at a comprehensive means of reparations. So right now we fought and I do feel like some of this lives in my bones. It lives in my story, but not just my story. It lives in people like Sean Moulier, who's been here for forever fighting for Black lives and has you know, often been overlooked as somebody who was one of the groundbreaking people to be out there in these predominantly white areas, all white areas, fighting for black children and trying to make sure that they had dignity within their schools and their families have safety. We have so many people in this state who have invested very heavily into trying to make it so that we can not only live here and thrive, but that we want to be here and we recognize this as our home. So that reparations means that when we are trying to get involved in changing the structures that are keeping us from our full participation in this state, that are keeping us from accessing prosperity, that are keeping us from accessing quality education, that are keeping us from entrepreneurship, from our creative expression, from using our um, traditional knowledges and ways of being and um, doing so in ways that do honor our cultural norms. Until we are in those spaces, none of that will change. But We haven't even made the investment in saying that we need to compensate the folks that are involved in that work. We understand it when it's rich white folks with a PhD that will put them on state committees. We will put them on state commissions and give them a vested salary because their opinions are so important that they deserve to be paid for those opinions. And yet we have groups like the Native American Commission, the Commission on Women, the Environmental Justice Council, and so many other groups where people are paid. $50 $50 a minute. That is the state's willingness and their investment in the very people here who are helping to run our state government. That is the investment. That is less than slave wages that they're asking for people, for us to come in and make these changes. We are needing to look at the ways that we are trying to do land back. Folks are interested and invested in getting into food foodways, agricultural systems, and we find ourselves chased out we find ourselves cut out of opportunities there are still so many barriers and we've thought about these prospects. we've thought about the possibilities we've thought about the solutions we've been imagining them all along david and yet that expertise is unheard that expertise is effectively silenced that expertise is seen as a nice-to-have rather than a needed component. So if we're going to make these changes as we are putting ourselves out there to experience harassment, because we do, to experience terrorism, because we do, to make this state a better place, it's time for the state to invest in us.
1: What would that look like? What would you want to see? and? Of course, this segues into your current work. Far from being silenced, you have pivoted from a legislative uh, role, a leader in, uh, in the political realm, to a leader of a grassroots advocacy group, Rights and Democracy. What are you fighting for now?
0: I'm fighting for folks to be able to move from a place of protest into a place of power. I'm moving for our folks to not have to feel like they have to camp out outside of a police department for a month in order to just have their voices heard and then to have the work be undermined. I'm fighting out there. We're trying to build this work to help, especially um, those who are least represented within the places of decision-making power. And it doesn't just have to be in a political space. That we're there. We are there as peers. We're not there just as supports or as in an advisory capacity, but we're there as decision-making peers. We are trying to change Vermont for all of us, to become better for all of us, to move into the future together. And so for that work to have meaning, it's not also just on the state of Vermont. There are too many private businesses and there's too much wealth in the state for these types of initiatives to constantly be singing for their supper and having to show where they're bleeding in order to be considered valid, in order to be considered worthy of investment because we invest in Vermont and it's time for Vermont to invest in us.
1: What is an initiative that really has your passions and energies where you're investing it now in your new role?
0: I am deeply invested in, again, trying to have folks who identify as being BIPOC, folks who are um, from the LGBTQIA community, our youth, our disability community, having individuals be able to see themselves in decision-making power. So it could be around environmental justice is an enormous place that we're all feeling experiencing right now. And we know that people of color are those who are impacted the worst when it comes to these conditions, really dealing with environmental racism. I'd love to see more of the work around supporting folks in some of these different efforts, like the Everytown Project, thinking of the power that comes as well from, um, how we're building out support networks and systems of security. Again, this is something that we at Rights and Democracy invest our dollars in. We don't get grant money to do it, but we invest our dollars in, ensuring that the people that work for us, the folks that are running for office, that get seated into these places, our community members and leaders, but able to actually have tangible security to help them be able to do their work fully and not feel terrorized by the world around them, to not be worried about the stresses of doing this work and being visible in this work as they push back to change. I'm deeply invested in our healing as well. I'm deeply appreciative of the work that's come from many groups like the Relief Collective and others that have really centered around how we are doing our healing as BIPOC here in Vermont um, in the ways that are meaningful for us so that we can continue to live and love and thrive here and call Vermont our home.
1: I want to ask how you have dealt with your own healing and your own trauma from the experiences that you've had, what has been helpful to you? Where do you go to seek balance and solace?
0: It is often going inward, right? It's me being able to, and when I say inward, it's within those four walls of my home. It's often being able to spend time with my family, spend time with my child, going out into nature and being able to really connect there It is about being able to be with friends and seeing them now that we're getting closer to the end of this sort of phase of the pandemic, endemic as we want to call it, being able to be in community with others. That is so powerful, and especially within many of the affinity spaces, has been a beautiful thing just to see others and knowing that so many of us are struggling and so many of us are really having a hard time right now. There's a lot that we are investing and we're not getting refilled. And so trying to help support and refill each other in the ways we can has been a beauty for me. I won't say that I'm healed from the trauma. I think I'll feel greater healing when the work is in a much better place. I am deeply saddened by the lack of progress that's been made in Bennington. I'm very devastated for the people that I love that are down there who have not been able to not been able to get back to whole lives.
1: This is Black History Month. And Black History Month this year comes at a time when there is a concerted effort to erase Black history, to stop Black history. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has chosen, of all things, an AP Black history curriculum to ban it from the state of Florida. It is apparently too dangerous for the students of Florida to take an AP class and learn about African American history. What's your hope that people learn in this Black History Month that they didn't know when it began?
0: Well, the reality is that there's nothing dangerous about Black history, and it's a smokescreen to just say we need to strip all things away that are not um, centered on a European narrative and a white Western story. Um, There's nothing dangerous, inherently dangerous of people learning about the world around them. In this moment, we are struggling to still bring about equity in our schools in Vermont. The work that the Act One Working Group did is coming to a close. And there's very little um, hope that the recommendations are gonna come with are going to be acknowledged by the Agency of Education or by the um, State's Board of Education.
1: Could you just remind us what Act One uh, did?
0: Act One was a really powerful and historic bill, one of the first in the country that was seeking to establish ethnic and social equity standards within all of Vermont schools. It was something that had a lot of pushback over time, but it was one that came from parents themselves saying, we need this. We need our students to be global leaders. We need our students to see themselves in the curriculum. We need our students to see themselves as a part of our school systems, to not be experiencing hate within their classrooms, to understand how their work here in Vermont will change the world. And it was a bill that passed and a comprehensive working group of community members from different generations, different cultures, different backgrounds, as well as folks from the private sector and within state government put together a set of recommendations to try to support how we go about making those very substantial changes in our educational system and of course with everything else there has been pushback. We have seen that happen in Essex Junction, we've seen that happen in Randolph, we've seen our folks targeted by Fox News when they've tried to make this work happen. So it is just as vulnerable here as it is anywhere else and as much as we will try to vanguard it. Again, the attempts for the silencing are very real. And they still also live in the online space. So I say within this Black History Month that we are currently living in history. This is not a thing of the past. We're not just here to smile and look at pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks or Harriet Tubman and say we've done our job. There are living history makers right here right now standing up with just as much courage, coming forth with their beauty of their art, their culture, their skills, that are still here today that we can learn about, celebrate, and become better Vermonters just through the experiencing of life together in a peaceful, loving way.
1: So many people are struggling in the aftermath of the pandemic and just the ongoing stresses of you know, the political activities of the world, the, the systemic racism and sexism that we've talked about. What can you share from your own experience to others who are struggling that helps you keep going in this fight, in this life, in this world?
0: Your experiences are real. Your experiences are valid. It is deeply painful. It is terrifying. I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that what you are experiencing is real and it is valid. You have every right to feel terrified. You have every right to feel anxious. You have every right to be concerned, but know that not only are you not alone, that you are precious and important. I want you to know that this is an organized strategy that's been used throughout the years. It just looks and changes over time into different forms. Reach out for help. Find those who can support you and take breaks when you need to. You don't have to keep going until you are exhausted. You will find more rest and respite if you're able to reach out to those in your community who are invested.
1: When you saw this film, where your story is told, uh, it's kind of an out-of-body experience to see your own story told and to be <laughs> in the audience. Yes. What was that like for you? And and what new perspective did it give you on your own experience?
0: It was interesting to see it in the way that it was told, and it's not like it was divergent from the truth, but it's different when you see it in its summation, recognizing how much there was to it, I think was powerful. This this felt like something you would see like a Francis McDormand movie about some small town in North Dakota or something like that, and not something that's happening in Bennington, Vermont, not something that's happening in Colchester, Vermont, in Rutland, Vermont. it is not something you could imagine that would be happening in your own backyard, but it's the reality that it did occur. It is painful to watch, of course. It's always difficult to relive one's trauma. And it gave me a strong desire to want to ensure it is given the attention that it deserves because someone else will undoubtedly see themselves in that story. And this might help them feel that they have somewhere to begin on their own journey of healing.
1: Well, Kaya Morris, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you, David.